What's up, guys? Welcome to the Small Town Wealth Podcast. Today is episode 15. We got Brad Marsh in the house. Brad is the managing broker and owner of Remax and Vernon, as well as several other Remax brokerages. He is a local real estate powerhouse, and he has a lot of knowledge to share. Um, we go into some things about his past involving his health. We go into some travel experiences. Really, this is an all-around, super value-packed episode that we really, really enjoyed. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. A little bit of a change of pace and energy from our previous podcast. More laid back, more chill, uh, a lot of uh, philosophies, a lot of good good points in this really enjoyed hearing about his past really enjoyed hearing about his his travels just overall interesting life and great outlook on life in general so really really enjoyed chatting with him he's an absolutely awesome guy yeah he brad is such a, a gem of a human being um brad is is my managing broker you know this is shelby from this podcast here and and you know, he's been a, a big mentor for me and to have him on the podcast was very personal. So I really wanted to bring him on to provide him a platform to help give value to others because that's what's so great about a small city like Vernon. And that's part of our small town wealth vision is giving value away for free and helping to, to lift people up one by one. So um, listen to this episode carefully. There's a lot of knowledge bombs that that Brad drops and a lot of, you know, golden nuggets of information. So uh, we hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed interviewing Brad. And uh, without further ado, here's the podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. We got uh, Brad Martian here. Brad is owner and managing broker of Remax and Vernon here, as well as several other Remaxes. Uh, he's my managing broker, full disclosure. Um, I brought him in because he has a really interesting story to tell, and we really want to get into that you know, as quick as possible. But kind of before that, how you doing? Good. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. You had a wild day today. Wild day, yeah. So I was out in the far reaches of uh, the broker network today in Ashcroft and Merritt, and hence uh, no suit and tie today. Uh, it kind of freaks them out in those towns when I show up that way. <laughs> That's awesome. What do you do in the car? Do you uh, podcast guy, music guy? A little bit of everything. Uh, I'll listen to podcasts. That uh, today I was mostly on the phone. I've got a truck that I can uh, give verbal text messages and uh, okay. everything else. So, so it's like my mobile office. That's awesome. It's a sweet unit in there. Actually, you got like a, your whole little mobile office, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, it makes the time a lot more productive. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. So. Why don't you tell the audience kind of who you are, what you're doing now, and then we'll kind of go into what created you, your, your background and everything like that. Okay, uh, Brad Marsh, I guess first and foremost, uh, husband and father and uh, president of Global West Real Estate Group, which uh, is mostly comprised of uh, real estate brokerages, but also does some development work and uh, also uh, owns and manages uh, real estate. Excellent. Excellent. So, and you've been involved in all kinds of business throughout your life. Yeah, I have. Uh, kind of a serial entrepreneur, I guess, if you will. Yeah. A lot of it's been tilted towards real estate, but not everything. Uh, have a, a small interest in a magazine and uh, really? own marine companies in the past and uh, software and travel management companies. So, Interesting. So when did you start in real estate? Like when was the first real estate itch that you got? Uh after uh, high school, which we can go back there in a bit, uh, after high school, I um, went to college for a year and 
and uh, was kind of not ready to settle into another four or five years of uh, education right away. I was quite a high-level uh, judo competitor. And gotcha. so I went to Texas to train. And uh, unfortunately, when I was training for the national championships down there, a training partner dropped me on my head, cracked my skull. And I had to come home to Canada to get a plate put in my head. And uh, as luck would have it, uh, my stepfather was a notary public at the time. And he said, uh, you got to be around for six months post-op. Might as well come to work. I could use the help. <laughs> so I ended up going through uh, school to become a notary public. And uh, the majority of the work I did uh, when I was training to be a notary public was real estate law. Gotcha. So I guess that would be my introduction to real estate. Gotcha. So what is the training process at that time to become a notary? Was it like a six month, one year program or? Uh, at that time it was either two or three year. I can't remember. I think it was two year uh, distance education and on site with UBC Souter School of Business out of Vancouver. Gotcha. Interesting. So you got this itch for real estate. You're in doing the, the notary public thing. How long did you do notary before you moved along? Uh, I think it was total about five years. I was in a couple years before I decided that uh, I actually might want to do that. And then I went all the way through the notary public program. But in those days, uh, notary publics were regulated by the number of seals in the community. Okay. And you couldn't write your exam until you had a seal to take. What do you mean by seal? Uh, notaries have a seal. Um, it's kind of their legal ability to take affidavits and oh, it's swear. Oh, kind of like a badge or something like that? Yeah, it's okay. like a corporate seal. Oh, okay. Like you, Interesting. It's like a document signed, sealed, and delivered. Gotcha. So that's what they call it. It's effectively your license. Gotcha. So okay. uh, anyway, uh, that was right about the time that the real estate market took a huge dip. And the plan had always been that I was going to take over the practice. And then my stepfather was going to semi-retire and work for me. But there wasn't enough business for both of us. So I had a year to write my exam. So I said, well, let me go work for a few months uh, out, outside the notary business. You keep things running and then uh, I can keep studying for my exam and go from there. So uh, I went and interviewed for a property management position at a local brokerage and uh, didn't actually think it went very well. Um, I sat down and being young and full of bravado and everything, mm -hmm. I, informed the uh, interviewer who is the president of the company that uh, I was there either to learn enough to go start my own brokerage or uh, I intended to take them over. And uh, <laughs> was, You said that in the interview. Yeah. So uh, uh, that's well into the interview. It was a long interview. And uh, that was on a Thursday. And uh, they uh, said that they had several more interviews to do the following Monday, Tuesday. And I got a call at 8.30 Friday morning. And I thought, oh, geez, I, I stepped in it so badly that uh, they've uh, written me off already. I could see on call display. And I said, uh, uh, they're phoning to tell me I've been hatcheted off the list already. And because they haven't even got to the other interviews yet. And lo and behold, she uh, said that... Uh, uh, if you and I don't kill each other in six months, I'll let you buy into the company because we're very similar personalities. Interesting. Interesting. So lo and behold, it went really well. Six months later, I bought in as a minority partner. A couple of years later, majority partner and uh, never went back to the notary public business. Crazy. 
Crazy. So what company was this property management company? That was, you had never done any sales up to that point. No, no. It was uh, called Sheridan Property Management based in Kamloops. Gotcha. And property management was still booming even though the real estate market had Yeah, they often move in opposite cycles. Um, property management is fairly consistent, a lot of investment property, but also when sales go down, property management tends to go up because people who can't sell their house but need to move will rent oh, the house Interesting. and everything else. But I actually specialized for the first number of years in uh, strata property management. So at one point I had uh, about 30 some odd strata corporations under management. And what's it like to be a property manager? You Chaos. Deal with shit all day or what? <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it can be really challenging, uh, especially if you're gonna do it right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had a good mentor, uh, pr true professional who did, did good work. So I, I learned the proper way of dealing with things and uh, it was an excellent experience. And if you can become a good property manager, you can deal with just about anybody. And yeah. so it was an excellent education for all the rest of everything else I've done for sure. And that's where you've thrown Grayson in. That's that's for the exact Absolutely. reason why, right? I threw him into so, the deep end because if he can make it in property <laughs> management, he'll be fine in real estate. Yeah. For those that don't know, uh, Grayson is, is Brad's son and Brad threw him into property management to start. And, and I've worked with Grayson before and his phone is always going, 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 like yeah. eight till 10. And it it's never, crazy. And it never rings with good news. No, <laughs> <laughs> I have my rent on time. <laughs> exactly. So I figure if uh, he can make it through that proving ground, he, I didn't uh, build these companies with uh, intent for the kids to get involved. I wanted them to follow their dreams and do whatever. And Grayson was sure he wanted to be a lawyer and went off to university to follow that track. And then uh, decided the Okanagan lifestyle is pretty good and and everything else and came back and wanted to join the family business. So he got the worst of our portfolio and told to have fun. <laughs> but he's been doing good though. He's been doing great and he's uh, very done very well in growing the portfolio and uh, things are going really well. That's excellent. That's excellent. So let's take it back from the strata property management. You had a portfolio of strata corporations that you took care of. Yeah. Um, now, what was next after that? Because you did eventually get into sales. What was the what was the process for that? Because you did a lot of development stuff as well. It wasn't just like you went from being a property manager to a sales rep. It was different than that. I did a lot of consulting and got into commercial management uh, towards the end of my tenure with Sheridan Property Management. Uh, being a young guy, I made some mistakes. Um, I sold myself and my services instead of my team services when I was young in business. Uh, I was in my early 20s and, uh, you know, a partner in a fairly significant company. And I figured that I had to make myself out to be all important and everything else. And it's a valuable lesson I learned because what happened was uh, as the company continued to grow, everybody wanted to deal with me and wanted me to be hands-on, even though we had a fantastic supporting cast and great staff and everything else. And uh, I hit the wall. I was literally working six, seven days a week. Um, I'm not exaggerating when I say 15, 16, 17-hour days. I'd literally go home for a couple hours, get sleep, shower, and head back to the office. And uh, I said, here I am, my mid-20s. Uh, have the proverbial corner office, everything's going well, I don't see my kids, I don't see my wife, and everything else. So I tried to introduce other property managers into the portfolio, 
everything else. But everybody said, no, nah, Brad, we give, give them to somebody else. We want you. And so that was a valuable lesson learned. So I ended up uh, uh, selling out my interest and uh, moving to the woods uh, because I was going to calm down and slow down and just take it easy for uh, a few years and, uh, and uh, so on. So we moved up to, we sold the company, moved up to the South Caribou. Right, right. I remember that from a story that you were telling me too. So what happened there? It, was that so? At that time in your life, you you kind of notioned to um, the fact that you were a workhorse and you know didn't see your kids and your wife. Now, what was that like at the time? Did the was the reason why you kind of made the decision to go out in the woods because all of a sudden you're like, well, I can't keep doing this. It's not sustainable or was there a different No, it was to sustainable. It? And, and I've got to admit, I really liked my work and I enjoyed it and everything else. But I didn't want to wake up one day with all this success and not have a relationship with my kids and or maybe not have a wife or anything like that because I'm fortunate I got it right the first time, but it was on a path that wasn't sustainable. Early on, we were so young, we didn't know any better and figured that that's just what you needed to do to get ahead. So anyway, uh, when I sold the company, the reason the Caribou, we had a three-year, 100-kilometer non-compete agreement. Okay. Uh, so I couldn't do anything real estate related within 100 kilometers of Kamloops. So we looked oh, at sure. Vernon, wanted to come to the Okanagan, couldn't find any opportunities that worked. And uh, so we ended up looking at the Caribou, and I thought, oh, I'll just go up and sell real estate for three years. Um, I'd sold big commercial buildings, multi-million dollar apartment buildings. How hard can it be to sell a cabin on a lake? Right. So I uh, went up there, went to uh, this little hole-in-the-wall brokerage, uh, uh, independent, and literally dust clouds floated up when you sat on the couch in the waiting room. It was <laughs> pretty rustic. And uh, I went to the broker. There was three realtors there at the time. And I said, I'd like to hang my license with you. And I'm just here for three years. I want to have my kids grow up a little bit while we're up here, live on a lake, let them run around the woods and be little boys and go from there. So he said, no. He goes, but I'll sell you the company. I said, listen, I just got out of this. He goes, listen, I'm a great realtor. I'm a terrible businessman. You come with this experience and everything. It'll be a piece of cake. You can do it in your sleep. So I went home and told my wife that uh, I had bought a company and she said, you did what? <laughs> she goes, I thought we got up here, did not do that. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we, uh, it went really well and uh, I had some new concepts for how to run a brokerage, uh, different than what some of the competitors were doing. And next I knew, I knew it started to grow and grow and then another brokerage down the road came to me and said, Brad, we want you to take us over and did a very unique deal there that uh, worked out really well. And then another brokerage came to me and said, or six of the realtors came and said, we want you to talk to our broker and see if you'll take over. Uh, but uh, uh, at the time I had uh, two offices that were independent at that point, independent, and the, these guys were Remax. And I said, well, I'm kicking your butt, so why do I want to be Remax? Because that, that was one of their conditions. If I took them over, they want to stay Remax. Okay. And uh, I said, uh, you know, I'm kicking your butt. I'm taking your market share and everything else. Why would I want to do that? And they said, well, tell you what, headquarters for Western Canada is in Kelowna. Drive down there for the day and um, talk to the management 
and then tell us what you think. Well, I went down there and they absolutely blew me away. And it was a case where the local person at the time just wasn't using any of the tools. He put up the sign on the door, but that was it. He wasn't using any of the systems or, or clout that, uh, or intellectual property, I guess you could say, that the Remax had spent years and millions of dollars to develop. And it was no brainer. I went back, did the deal, and then I rebranded all the offices. To Remax. To Remax. So you were able to do all the offices in, in a blanket deal. Like yeah, you were able to I, just do them all instead of having to do I, each one individually. I, yeah, I took over the two that were Remax and I took over and rebranded my two and combined them with my independence name with the Remax brand gotcha. to come up with a new entity. And then a couple of years later, I combined the four offices into two bigger offices because they were fairly close in proximity. Right. And uh, went really well. Um, you want me to continue with the story? Or? Yeah, yeah, keep going, man. So then uh, that went really well. We were growing, our market share was up over 50%. Um, so how much can you attribute that to being with, uh, with being affiliated with Remax and, you know, for people that don't know, Remax tends to have a pretty large market share in, in almost every market, but there's other big companies too. There's the century 21s and, um, Royal LePage, Keller Williams, those types. So what, Absolutely. what, in your opinion, w w was Remax really that big of a catalyst or was it just a stepping stone for better habits? It's a definite help. I mean, there's other great brands, other great brokers who do really well and everything else. But if you look in generalities across Canada, in particular, the U.S. also, but in particular Canada, they have a huge market share across the country. So they tend to attract good brokers, good realtors. And so there's a bit of an unfair advantage there when it comes to recruiting top talent and that because it has a reputation for excellence. So it definitely helped. Okay. Uh, and then uh, Remax Western Canada thought I was doing a good job and everything and knew that I'd wanted to ex expand. And at one plan point I had a tentative, I won't say tentative, I had talked to the owner brokers of uh, the all the brokerages north of me all the way up to Prince George, including Quinnell and Williams Lake and everything else. And they, they thought I was kidding, but I wasn't. I told them that I was going to buy them all out when they were ready to retire. <laughs> and I was going to grow that way. Remax Western Canada knew I wanted to grow, and uh, they had an opportunity, a broker who wanted to sell their offices in the shoe swap. And that worked out really well because we wanted the kids to be in a bigger center for high school, and they okay. were just finishing up their uh, elementary years. And uh, so when they said shoe swap, I kind of changed course and uh, uh, decided that that would be a, a good thing. So I went down, uh, did a deal to buy the Shushwap offices. So twice a week I was doing a three and a half hour one way. So seven hour round. Twice a week. Twice a week. I was driving seven hours round trip. Lovely. Uh, to the Shushwap offices. Uh, had great staff and management. So wasn't much of a problem there. And uh, we were literally looking at a house in uh, Upper Raven. It's called in Salmon Arm to move the family down there when I got a phone call from the owner of Remax Vernon. And he goes, hey, uh, this is Brian Brandle. He goes, I heard you're moving into my neighborhood. I thought, oh, great. I've already 
pissed off the uh, big dog next door. And <laughs> he, he's obviously had designs on salmon armor or whatever, and he's got right, some right. real pipsqueak coming in, stepping on his toes. <laughs> and he goes, uh, I've done my homework on you. And I said, oh. And he said, yeah. He goes, I hear really good things. I think we should talk. So I drove down to Vernon, met with him, and next thing I knew, we had a tentative deal for me to buy in a partnership in Vernon and uh, take over Vernon office, which included uh, Armstrong and Lumbee. They were just doing deals at the time. Right. And I said, well, I can't afford that unless I sell up north. And so I went to the guy in Williams Lake who I told him I was going to buy out and said, change of plans, you're going to buy me out. <laughs> and in about 10 minutes, we had a handshake deal. And wow. uh, we never did move to Salmon Arm, not that we wouldn't have loved to, it was a great community, but uh, we ended up moving to Vernon just because it was the bigger office. Yeah, and bigger it's a bigger center. market, right? So. And uh, so we came down and since then we've been very fortunate to add some other offices to the mix. Absolutely. Yeah, you've added quite a few yeah, over okay. the years. What's it like owning a brokerage? Like, is it is it similar being under the brand of like Remax, for example, is it similar to like when you own a, a franchise of just a, a company in general, like whether it's a restaurant or well, I'm not familiar with a lot of other franchises, but uh, is it like, like are there, if you don't mind me asking, no, are there like all. royalty royalty fees that you pay uh, like percentage wise year to year to use yeah. the brand? Yeah, or? so Remax agents fees are, are structured in such a way that uh, there's a little bit that goes to the international mm -hmm. component of the company. Uh, which is now a publicly traded company. Really? It wasn't for years. It was privately held for a very long time. Dave and Gail Lineker founded the company. Um, and then there's a little bit that goes to Remax Western Canada. Uh, they run a lot of the advertising and promotion of the brand. I mean, you just about can't turn on a hockey game in the winter or the yeah. global news or anything without seeing Remax plastered somewhere, which brand awareness is, is very, very good. Um, so a large component of what we send to them goes directly back into advertising in our market and across Western Canada. Uh, and then they pay a fee to the realtor as well. And then the broker pays a franchise fee uh, to, to headquarters. Okay. Okay, so it is pretty similar then from that front. Yeah. Yeah, yeah awesome. and, and it's interesting because most people think of realtors as employees of Remax, but yeah. we're actually independent contractors. It's a it's a different kind of a setup, right? Like for me, I identify with Remax, but it's it's not your typical employee setup. So no, that's right. And uh, realtors don't always, but uh, in most cases, in at least British Columbia, are set up as uh, their own, um, like you said, independent contractor status. Uh, you could have a company where they're employees, but that's exceedingly rare. I'm not aware of any right now. Right. And and go from there. So. Um, so you're almost like, as the broker, you're almost like the franchise, the franchisee, and then as realtors, you're basically licensees. Yeah, I think that, you're touching yeah. on one of the things that's yeah. been probably more the secret to my success than a lot of it, or at least one of the key components, and that is a lot of real estate brokers, and and indeed the law is such that the listings belong to the brokerage and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of brokers walk around like the realtors are employees. Right. Mm. And and that their business is the listing and selling of homes. Where I think that's fundamentally flawed in that the realtors are our customers. And mm. we're in the 
business of providing professional real estate services to realtors. Yes, their clients, part of that is that we facilitate holding the listings and, and all that kind of stuff. But when I hire for an admin position within our company, the first thing they're told is the realtor's our client and it's our job to make them as profitable as possible, make their life as easy as possible and keep them out of trouble, make sure all their paperwork's good yeah. and everything else. So, so I think that fundamental shift that uh, when somebody in accounting or conveyancing or the front desk views the realtor as uh, a client as opposed to an employee, there's a different dynamic. Right. And I think that's why one of the reasons we've been very successful in recruiting and retaining top talent. Absolutely. Yeah, you keep you keep a level playing field. That's what it seems like. You know, you, you give respect when it's due and you're not trying to create an employee situation. And you get a lot of that. Um, other brokers, even locally, will will hold listings and whatnot and do the sales part of it. I cannot imagine how much you would have on your plate for one, if you were selling real estate as well as being <laughs> holding all the positions that you do and, and the, the real estate that you do, well, right? To so. tell the truth, I'm a lot better broker than I ever was a realtor anyway. Gotcha. So leave it to the pros. Uh, they, The realtors I work with uh, uh, are experts in what they do and I like to be an expert in what I do. And because I have the mentality that they're my client and in fact believe that they are, why would I compete with my client? Just doesn't make sense to me. It's an interesting way of putting it actually. That keeps your priorities straight all the time. It does, and uh, it it is easy f for transparency and trust and everything else. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with uh, brokers who who sell. It's just a different business model, and and in some cases uh, they have to because their fee structures and that won't won't cover the operating costs, and it's out of necessity. But that's not always the case. Um, so it's just a formula that's worked well for for me. Interesting. So the skills that you've taken over the years, what other ventures are you currently into or what what um, do you like to do? Because you said you like to invest a lot in real estate and that comes in the form of, you know, owning brokerages. Yes. Um, but do you invest elsewhere? Like where where do you like to spend your money and where do you recommend people make safe investments? Well, I've got everything from small to large uh, real estate holdings. Uh, I obviously believe in real estate. It's been good to myself and my family, and and it's very good to most of the people I work for, being the realtors. Um, I I do other types of investments as well, but I would say the majority is in real estate, and that's because I understand it, I trust it, uh, I know it, and. Uh, uh, and it's proven over the years to be probably the biggest wealth builder for just about anyone is, is real estate. So I've got everything from small residential uh, to some fairly large commercial. How old were you when you uh, got your first property, investment property? Oh, 25. And what, maybe, just, maybe 24, 23, somewhere. Just out there. of curiosity for numbers purposes. What was your down payment and what was the interest rate that you were paying on that mortgage? Oh, wow. <laughs> I think the condo itself, and I kick myself still for selling the damn thing. Never sell real estate, just keep it. <laughs> just keep it. <laughs> I'm sure I used it to buy another company or something. But uh, anyway, uh, I think it was like $48,000, a two-bedroom condo. Total, not down payment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was something like that. Uh, and and I had to come up with 25%, I think. And the interest rate was somewhere in the neighborhood of 9%. Yeah, fair enough. What was the amortization? 
uh, amortization I did over 25% to keep my obligation as low as possible, but I made considerable effort to pay it off quicker than that. Uh, 25 years? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. So I, I, I quite often when I invest in real estate, take the maximum amortization available with the most lenient, flexible prepayment privileges right. that I can. Well, because as so an, my obligation yeah. is least amount possible, but I can pay off as much as I am oh, able okay, to. That's smart. Is in that a contingency or something? Yeah, is that a contingency thing as well? If you know, if, if times get hard, at least the payment is lower, and you can you can use up that amortization if you. If that's you right. During during the term of that mortgage. But also, it's smart to have the longer amortization because at the end of the day, if you're using it as an investment property, it's good debt it's being like darren jacklin talked about right it's it's being paid off for you so why would you need to pay that off quickly unless yeah. you wanted to for yeah it's a little different with today's low interest rates yeah. you can feel that way a little bit when it's nine percent you kind of want to get that principal paid down as quick as you can now comparing uh mortgage lending rules and just overall how it worked back then versus now are you, would you say that it's significantly more strict now than it was back then I don't think for investment purposes it yeah. is necessarily. Um, there's certainly more tests and, and all that kind of stuff. But I think the general rule of thumb of percentage down and whether it makes sense and all that kind of stuff, they may look at your personal income and other supporting income a little bit more stringently Yeah. Um, as far as that goes. I think the uh, biggest differences have been in the first-time homeowner field and stress tests and all those kind of things. Totally. It's completely changed buyer behavior. Like, what do you see as the largest change with, you can take buyers on residential or commercial, um, comparing, you know, the, the regular 10% interest rates that our parents had um, with hey, three, three. Easy and there. <laughs> Your parents were 18%. That's true, actually. Okay, so let's take, <laughs> let's take, let's take 12%. Um, on a macro level, when someone's investing and there's a 12% interest rate attached and there's a 3.5% on this side, that's kind of what it's at right now, that 3.5 yeah. to 4. Um, do you think that having that is too low for the average buyer? Is it is it too cheap? Or what is your opinion on interest rate changes and buyer behavior? There's no such thing as too cheap as an investor other than I fear that some people get in over their head thinking it'll always be that cheap. So right. some people over leverage and over commit. And, and I think the government, as much as I disagree with lots of their policies, I think are saving some people from themselves by making them qualify for a higher percentage than what their mortgage is. Right. Because if you look at a lot of the fallout that happened in the States at uh, different times and all that, people went to renew their mortgage and they couldn't afford it all of a sudden because uh, a 2% Variable. increase from 8 to 10 percent wasn't nearly as big as three to five. You've almost doubled your interest rate. Absolutely. So if you've leveraged yourself to the hilt and all of a sudden have a payment that increases by that much, it would put a lot of people underwater. Well, most people live paycheck to paycheck when they're middle class too, right? Yeah, like that's it's just- It's shocking, but true. Yeah. Yeah. And it's insane. Like you, I saw some of the interest rate changes, you know, you, you see all kinds of examples from that, from, you know, what they're, payment was in 2007 and then all of a sudden they go and refinance in 2009 and it's like their payment goes from 1300 to like 2200 and it's like most folks cannot afford that it's just too much exactly it's insane so yeah i explain it to people like that too it's kind of like 
Yeah, from the get-go, if you're a buyer and you're like, okay, well, I know I can afford this payment. And even if you know for sure that I have employment secured for 15 years, I mean, it'd be ridiculous to think that employment is that secure under any circumstances. But if it's that cheap, then where's the where's the pitfall? Exactly. Yeah. And it's so it's just, kind of like, yeah, the barrier of entry is high, but they're protecting you. Well, and we've become a global world. And whether it's stock markets or real estate markets and everything else, they're all influenced by areas outside your local market. They're not as local as they used to be. So what's going on in Vancouver real estate sometimes has a direct correlation to what's going on in our market. And Vancouver can be influenced by world events, uh, everything from immigration policy all the way through. So the world's become a pretty small place and, and right. a lot of things trade on news now, whether they're fundamentally backed by, you know, the economics or not. So what is your opinion then on things like, because I'm sure you've felt like dabbling in stocks and, uh, you know, now it's cryptocurrency and things like that. Obviously, you're, you're pro real estate and that's the majority, but in your experience, you know, why did you stray from those paths? What was it? Was it the unpredictability or? No, I quite like like equities. Um, I'm not much on uh, mutual funds and things like that, uh, just because I think it hampers. You get the bad with the good. I'd rather do my due diligence, uh, consult with professionals, and and have individual stocks. That's just a personal thing for me because I know the business, mm-hmm. uh, understand it, know what they're companies doing management's doing everything else so so definitely equities uh cryptocurrency i'll probably never invest in because i don't understand it to me it's this fictional thing out there and there's people who know it and try, i i think blockchain technology is pretty cool right and i think there's going to be a lot of uses for that but uh, cryptocurrency is just beyond my little pea brain so <laughs> it's a whole nother world out there that's for sure it is and i'd rather be really good at the things i know and and stick to them uh then but never say never i could maybe have an epiphany and uh and that but right now it doesn't seem real to me so uh i that's stay away from that kind of stuff well the hype is real that's for sure the hype yeah, is there but i mean it was up and down by about 60 percent, i think over a course of months and now it's headed back up again so yeah. yeah, we'll see what happens at the end of the year. They were saying uh, the biggest drop it took at one point was over 95%, like back in 2010 or 2011 or something yeah. like that, it dropped by 95%. Obviously, that wasn't so significant because it was only worth like 30 cents and it dropped to like uh, a tenth of one cent or something right. like that. But it was just, it's interesting to kind of see that dynamic play out because markets can drop by so much where you think, oh, they're done, they're not never coming back. And then all of a sudden that a tenth of a cent uh bitcoin is now was now worth at one point seventeen nineteen thousand american yeah if if i was to invest in something that i didn't fully understand but was the future of where things are going and that kind of stuff i think i'd be more on the ai side of things than yeah. anything else i think there's a lot of real exciting stuff coming down absolutely from ai that's going to be quite investable and do really well and change our, change our world going forward absolutely and where did you say you grew up uh for the when i from the time i was born to the time i was in grade three i was uh, on a farm up north of barrier uh and then uh, did Where's most of just north of camel north of camel oh, okay. yeah, so on a cow 
Cattle Finally, ranch. a podcast a podcast guest that's not from Saskatchewan. I know, right? <laughs> Cattle <laughs> Ranch. And then uh, moved to Kamloops uh, in grade three and graduated there. Okay. Gotcha. So your roots are there. My roots for are there. sure. Absolutely. What were you like growing up? Like, what kind, kind of kid were you? Good student. What kind uh, of kid were you? Wow. I was... How do I answer that? You didn't tell the teachers you were well, going to take their the jobs, did you? Well, grade grade seven, I spent the year running around the school because my teacher just decided that was the best place for me because I don't know whether he thought I was a disruption in class. He, quite honestly, I thought a lot of things he said were wrong, and I shouldn't have point, probably pointed it out. So. <laughs> um, I was an okay student. Uh, unlike my sister, she was a great student. Um, I could kind of skate by with bees without studying and everything else, yeah. and that was kind of good enough. Uh, sports held my interest a lot more than school did. Were you super uh, competitive? Pretty competitive. Yeah. Were yeah. you like, uh, they, they, like they, had they, to win at all costs? Like talking gym classes like the Olympics for you or what? No, I wouldn't say that bad, but... Oh, geez, it's only me? Or? It's only <laughs> competitive, you know, with my organized sport and that for sure. Okay. So, and I played a lot of sports uh, growing up and, and that. And it's probably why I gravitated later on in my teens and still to this day to the martial arts, that kind of stuff. Did you ever cry when you lost when you were younger? Uh, not that I remember, but I could just be blocking that out. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, there was a time when people would not play Monopoly with me. Let's put it that way. Uh. <laughs> I'll, I will play Monopoly. You're probably pretty you damn good at Monopoly, though. Let's be real. Yeah, but I didn't take it very well if I went bankrupt. Jeez, <laughs> oh, that's all right. I'm I'm with you though. Like I'll do whatever it takes to not go bankrupt. At one point, like I played a few few months ago, and I was at the point where I realized that things were starting to go south for me. So I teamed up with the person next to me. I That's... sold everything I had and poured my cash into her properties. And I was like, you and me, we're going to split the rent 50-50, but we're going to build hotels on these properties. <laughs> yeah. And that, then we managed to pull strategy. around and we won. <laughs> yeah. It's always been a philosophy of mine, whether it's a game or life or whatever. Failure is not an option. So yeah. look for another avenue. Did you have any like... Uh, crazy ventures growing up and stuff like that, like entrepreneurial stuff, selling anything? Like what's yeah, the earliest I mean, moment you can remember? From really young, I started with uh, everything from newspaper routes uh, and I talked the paper into giving me multiple routes and all that kind of stuff. Because oh, yeah. normally Hustler. they used to say only one. And, and not only that, I would target some of the wealthier neighborhoods and streets because the tips would be better. Oh yeah. So, so I oh, okay. I targeted them and I targeted apartment blocks because I could. Uh, apartment blocks are faster, right? Faster, Hit way building, way more drop, doors. Drop, 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 so, yeah. so those are the two I targeted and kind of started that way. And then that's awesome. My I uh, there was apartment buildings near where I lived, and uh, I used to go. I remember a couple of years. I uh, in the spring they need to sweep the gravels from the lot. And so I'd phone and say, what is your lowest bid for getting it cleaned? And with a, like a street cleaner type machine. And I'd underbid it and go do it with a, sh a shovel and a broom and <laughs> have calluses on my hands and all that. And I worked after school at a glass shop for a few years and wow. just odd jobs and all that kind of stuff. But always... 
What was your very, very first business venture? Was that the property management where you got into that? Uh, no, my first one would have been that when I went down to Texas. Yeah. Uh, I actually started, I was a licensed scuba diver, have been since I was 15 or 16. And I started an underwater marine maintenance business. And not unlike the gravel in the parking lot. Um, Just under a bit. Where, where, I, where I lived, there was an exceptionally high level of yacht ownership. Oh, yeah. And uh, if you know anything about yachts and salt water, zincs on the propellers and the props themselves and all that kind of stuff have to be changed at regular intervals and all that. And most of these people were hiring these big machines to pull the boat out of the water and clean the bottom of the boat and change the zincs and view props to see if they're damaged and that kind of stuff. So I came up with a breathing system that... Uh, uh, with the help of an uncle. You could check it underwater. You check it underwater without having to have tanks and everything on, just a regular remote mm -hmm. with the hose. And we expanded to uh, cleaning the bottom of boats and all that kind of stuff and got it down to, I put people on monthly maintenance schedules because normally people just once a year, we get somebody to scrub the bottom of the boat and it's a lot of work because barnacles and everything else are growing on it. Whereas doing it monthly, I could uh, get a monthly fee, regular income, and literally you can go with a washcloth and do it in a fraction of the time. And it would cost them less because now yeah, you're not spending hours or anything. So always kind of looking for established businesses that were there, but finding a new, better way to provide service. How old were you when you got into that? I would have been 18, turning 19. That's awesome. Very cool. So you've had an entrepreneurial spirit, spirit from early on. Yeah, absolutely. Needed to. Yeah. So you've had the entrepreneurial spirit spirit develop. I keep saying spirit wrong. Um, <laughs> leading up to strata property management and then into uh, brokerages and investing. Now you had some health stuff come up along the way um, in the last few years. Can you take us into that? You know, how did it all start and, and well, how sure. does it lead up to there, now? There's a couple, uh, there's probably a couple you don't even know about. Um, probably. I, uh, <laughs> funny story. <laughs> um, I'm a rugby player from way back and uh, I've been coaching junior rugby uh, at the Calus Rugby Club uh, with a great group of people for a long time. And uh, on a sunny Saturday, I was headed to the truck with my son to, to go down, and uh, we were playing a inter-squad game with another club from a men's team. And uh, or no, sorry, there was a junior game, and then there was a men's game after, and okay. they were short a player. And I had just happened to throw my rugby boots in, and my wife goes, "You're not playing today, are you?" I said, "No, no, I'm just going to have my cleats on to run with the boys a little bit." Well, sure enough, I got called in to, for, as a sub for the game. And, uh, of course, it was funny. My parents were there and everything else. And I smashed heads with another guy and, uh, and uh, laid my eye open for about six stitches. But we just threw some Vaseline in it, taped it up, finished the game. Of course, rugby players, right? And then <laughs> after the game, I was, uh, went for stitches and phoned my wife said, uh, Grayson had to work, so we sent him home with my mom because I had to go for stitches, and there was no way he was going to make it back in time for his after for his work. He was working at a restaurant at the time. So then uh, I'm at the hospital getting the stitches, and all of a sudden I started getting these really strong pains in my neck. And uh, out of an abundance of caution, they uh, 
took x-rays and didn't see anything. So anyway, I, I drove home to uh, Vernon and I started getting these unbearable pains and I had to really hold my arms in a weird way to stop from probably the worst pain I've ever had. So somehow I got home, didn't want to admit to my wife I was hurt. So I was up all night, everything else. And the next morning I said, babe, I don't think it's a big deal. I got a pinched nerve in my neck, but I think you better take me to emerge so I can get uh, a prescription or something. So she takes me into emergency. She goes, okay, well, I'll go grab some groceries while you get uh, a prescription or whatever. And she comes back, must have been an hour later or whatever. And I can hear her saying, my husband came in for a prescription. Who's your husband, Brad? Oh, they're getting him ready for surgery. Um, they'd done a search and she came in and saw me and I'm all hooked up to IVs and air and stripped down and all this kind of stuff. Oh, they, they found that I'd blown a disc in my neck. So, uh, so anyway, uh, great surgeons at Vernon General. I thank them to this day. Uh, removed the disc and uh, and uh, put in a artificial thing, kind of fused the disc and all that kind of stuff. And so that was another blow to my head. In addition to the one that uh, I had, one. judo one. And, and I'd been um, riding bikes for years. And in those days, we didn't wear helmets and all that stuff. So I had a few bangs to the head. And then I had a second neck surgery for another disc that I blew. And uh, so then shortly after that, uh, I noticed that I had a slight tremor. In my, well, it wasn't a tremor. It was like tingling and, and a bit of a tremor in my right arm. And uh, we thought that it was probably nerve damage from the neck surgeries. That's why I gave you right. the whole long song and dance. Because that would make sense, right? That's... Yeah. So anyway, so I went in and saw a nerve specialist. And he goes, no, I think you've got Parkinson's. So lo and behold, I went to a couple of specialists and everything else. And uh, I was diagnosed with what they call early onset Parkinson's, which it's not in my family history at all. So it's probably uh, as a result of the wear and tear on my head over the years. The head is precarious that way, that's for sure. I mean, it can lead to all kinds of different things. So like how long did you have the tremor for before you finally went, you know, I need to figure this out? Was it just like you know, a non-issue? Pro probably a year. It was just very faint. It was mostly when I was exercising and, you know, my central nervous system was amped up and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, whether it was, I noticed it jogging mostly at CrossFit or little, doing a high intensity workout at CrossFit, I'd noticed it a little bit. Right. So it, when would it, when your blood flow was increased? Yeah, that's when I noticed it the most. Okay. So you went in, how many years ago was that that you got diagnosed? About five or six now. Five or six. So how has your life changed since then? I know, um, you must have had to modify either your duties or the way that you approach your business and your relationships. How how has that transformed your life? I think the best way to put it is I live a richer life now as a result of, of the diagnosis. Um, it's helped me prioritize other things. Um, I still love my work. I can't imagine being without it and that kind of thing. But I do make a point of uh, noticing the the neat things around you every day, whether it's spring and you're driving to the canvas office and there's a newborn calf in a field and you just take a second to take that in and go, that's pretty cool. Or 
or, you know, frozen water on a fence line or like ice on a fence line. Just enjoy the small little things in life a lot more. So, and, and take more time for sure. I mean, I work as hard as I ever did, but uh, I try to structure it in such a way that uh, travel more and enjoy friends and family more and that kind of stuff. Where have you traveled? I know since I've been at Remax, you've traveled to China and there's been a couple other places, but I can't, you know, where have you traveled since, since this has happened, since you prioritized traveling and and where was your favorite? Well, we've always traveled a lot. So we've been very fortunate. Uh, I am, my wife and I are both adventurous that way, have inquisitive minds, love history. Uh, You know, we've been to Europe a number of times, traveled a lot, a lot of Europe, a lot of Scandinavia. Um, those are trips that we've taken. Like you said, China was fascinating, uh, just the history and the culture and, you know, how sophisticated they were in the sciences and that 2000 years ago is just mind boggling. And, you know, to walk on the Great Wall and imagine it being built brick by brick with nothing more than ropes and pulleys and everything's pretty awesome. Uh, but my favorite trip was probably Africa. And uh, it was very cool. Which part um, of Africa did you go through? We went through, uh, t- we say Tanzania here, they say Tanzania over gotcha. there. And uh, and what's the island? Madagascar. No, no. Um, Zanzibar. Zanzibar. And Zanzibar okay, gotcha. is very, very cool as well. Interesting. Great people. It's, it's, it's really refreshing on... I can't remember the exact splits, but it's 50-50 through lots of the areas, maybe not the whole country, but lots of the areas, uh, Catholic and Muslim. And everybody lives together in harmony and, and the villages are all intermixed and everybody respects one another and and children are in uniforms going to school with smiles on their face. And it, it was pretty cool because we get jaded by North American news, uh, making out to believe that, you know, different people are... You know, we, we only hear the worst of the worst. Right. And We're conditioned to. Yeah. But then uh, being out uh, in uh, Africa in these game, game parks, they, were, they weren't privately owned. These were government ones. Um, it's pretty awesome to step where there's been nothing changed in history. I mean, it still looks the same way it did 3,000 years ago. Okay. Just open plains and animals and everything else. You're like a guest in this other world. So it's, it's pretty cool. We had a couple near misses that were uh, pretty exciting. and uh, and Near misses? What, what do you mean by that? Tell us a story. Uh, I've got two that, that are really memorable. And one was uh, we had, uh, they have open air lodges with thatched roofs for dinner in the camps. I guess the first misconception was we thought we'd be in a fenced compound. And... Uh, not so with these kind of parks. Okay. It's wide open to the elements. Like the animals can just walk through. I got up one morning and there was a big elephant dung by our front step. <laughs> An elephant had gone by our little tent in the night. So uh, <laughs> so that, that was pretty cool. My, our first night there is worth telling. We've been flown in to this remote area and then the plane leaves and you get in a Jeep and you go on a two hour thing through the I just some of the most rugged country you've ever seen to get to this camp. And uh, we get into our tent that night and it's a canvas tent with kind of a thatched roof over top on, on a wooden platform. 
And of course, we're the youngest ones on this tour. So we're put the furthest into the wild, <laughs> the furthest out away from the compound. And uh, we, we got a tent that uh, the canvas part didn't zip down, the zipper was broken. Oh, no. So it was just the bug screen. And uh, we just crawl into bed and we heard a lion get something. And it might have been two kilometers away, but the way the travel, the sound travels, it sounded like it was right outside. Oh, and man. you heard this animal squealing and everything else. And my <laughs> wife was like, we're out of here. <laughs> I've had enough. I'm not staying here. First night. Everything else. She goes, "There's it can come through this canvas door. It's not even a door in anything. She goes, where's the whistle? There's supposed to be a whistle in every tent. We didn't have a whistle. Oh, man. They really <laughs> and, like and, 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 and we, We've been warned. We've been warned not to leave the hut in the dark. <laughs> of course. Because of the animals and everything else. So I ended up taking out a shoelace and tying together the front part of the door. And I'm sure my wife figured out all night how she could barricade the beds in such a way to protect herself. <laughs> Some broke in. So after that, it got a lot better. I kind of got used to it and all that. Uh, our, our second uh, thing was actually a bit more scary, but uh, it felt very safe because of the people we had. Um, we were coming back from uh, eating hut and all of a sudden we're taken by a tribesman every every time after dusk you don't walk alone during these camps and it's mostly for actually hippopotamus and elephants i was just gonna say was your it's, was it's your encounter actually, with a hippo it's not even yeah. lions and all that kind of stuff and they have a flashlight and they uh keep scanning the brush for eyes and everything well his flashlight comes back to the path for a second all of a sudden i see this head rising up from the dirt and i thought oh and i jumped back and uh our maasai warrior guy smacked it with a stick it was a king cobra no way and then the thing really was pissed so it comes up again and it's getting ready (laughs) and he whacks it again he kept whacking it till its head came off what oh man it was a massive king cobra and uh you're kidding me (laughs) it was pretty intense there for and this guy speaks like no english right it's like that's terrifying no english but he was able to squirt out Dangerous, very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was our first encounter that was actually scary. And our other one was uh, uh, we were in a dry riverbed uh, looking for some lion cubs that people had seen a day before. And we accidentally, in the cracks in the riverbed, uh, some African bees had built a nest. And we drove over the nest and they swarmed the vehicle. And they, the driver was getting stung quite a bit. And he just literally put his hands over his arm, eyes and everything else and punched the gas. And we're bouncing along this dry riverbed and up the side of the riverbed. And he's not even steering or anything. And people are screaming because they're getting stung. And thankfully, I was calm enough to t- tell my wife, just be calm and lay still. Uh, we never got stung at all. But they must Some have, people freak out, right? Yeah. It's, the people freaking out you know, were the ones getting stung. But only one or two stings. It wasn't. Like, wasn't this like, like full-fledged people were going to start but, dying but, and, but exactly but yeah. there but in the moment there was thousands of bees and, yeah, still freaking and we, had, we had to get up onto this dirt road and go probably the better part of a kilometer before we lost them they they stayed wow. with the jeep that that's long. insane well so, and it's also just being in a different country like you're in a for most of those people they're probably in a different continent completely 
It's like you don't have your safety zone. It's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not well, going to go no, home I mean, tonight. Like it's it's a few hours to get to the airstrip, a few hours to get the airplane there, get flown out to where. <laughs> uh, it's pretty. It was pretty intense, but interesting. That, that and we pulled up to look at some lions uh, eating a kill in the distance. And I looked down and the driver hadn't seen one that was laying under a tree right beside the wheel where I was sitting. And I could have literally uh, reached out and touched a lion that was gnawing on a leg that was right there. No way. And these guides uh, don't carry guns. Oh. But they know what they're doing. And, uh, you know, having said that, as much as those sound like scary situations, I would do it again in a heartbeat because, yeah. because they really were very good at what they did. And all that and met some really interesting entrepreneurs really? on the trip okay. uh yeah the family that owned the uh safari company that we're with also owned the airline also owned uh i can't remember how many hundreds of thousands of acres uh, of this valley and uh, wow. they've actually employed all the local villages and they have a technology training thing for locals and uh, hiv clinics and everything wow. else and so are they from outside of africa where were they they're from? from england originally okay so they well, did it as like a philanthropic thing well no he was a uh, vice president unilever in charge of okay. growing tea in uh tanzania for for unilever and he was a uh, high up executive and when they they had mandatory retirement at age 60, I want to say, I, that might not be accurate, but somewhere around there. Okay. And he said, I don't know what I'll do if I go back to the UK. He goes, I like it here. So he was having a uh, uh, drink one night with one of the v village chiefs nearby. And they go, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this valley if you hire our people to develop it. Wow. So they have a self-sustaining farm uh, that, Amazing. That grows vegetables, coffee, tea, um, beef, um, all the birds you can think of and everything else. Whatever you need to subsist, essentially. Yeah. And they, like I said, they teach people how to sew and give them a sewing machine at graduation so they can go back to their village and have gainful employment. And uh, there was other textiles and that as well that they had in their training center and they built hospitals and clinics and all this kind of stuff he's even uh true brit though he he booked he built his own um trout hatchery and <laughs> Im imported rainbow trout and he's got his own trout lake with his own really? his own hatchery that he stocked so i got to go fly fishing on the lake all by myself That's in the sweet. middle of africa did you make so, fish and chips no no I, I i didn't have the heart to take them out i put them all back so fair enough so very cool entrepreneur though who's making a difference in africa and just because it's a funny story his his name is mr fox it's the fox family you can look them up there's a book been written about no them and uh i can't remember the equivalent of the order of canada which is the highest honor a civilian can be given was to be given to him by the queen at buckingham palace uh, for the UK designation for his work with HIV and AIDS and wow. trying to save the population. And to tell you what a character he was, they gave, they said, though, when you go to Buckingham, you have to dress this way and everything else. And he says, if I can't have my shorts, I'm not going. If I can't wear shorts, I'm not going. <laughs> so they ended up sending an ambassador from the UK to his farm in Africa to give him the award. No way. He didn't go. <laughs> 
Because he wanted to wear shorts. He goes, ah, if I can't be me, I'm not interested. So, Oh, wow. man, that's crazy. So you meet some really good people traveling and, and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, very inspirational. His wife actually had just been diagnosed with Parkinson's. So oh, wow. we, we spent some time together sharing stories and treatments and all that kind of stuff. So it was a pretty good relationship. That's really cool. Uh, I have a question relating to uh, traveling and, and business, but it, it's interesting when you talk about the opportunities that this Mr. Fox created. Um, I read a book a few years ago by Dambisa Moyo and it's called Dead Aid. And she she's an economist and she basically highlights the fact that um, aid, you know, foreign aid, while it's not inherently a bad thing, but it really does stunt those communities' ability to get on their feet and stay on their feet. And she used the example of, okay, so imagine a fairly a really poor village and one of the village members learns how to uh, make fishing rods and he wants to sell them for a low price but enough so that he can go and buy supplies and feed his family now all of a sudden he walks to the village to sell these 10 fishing rods that he's just created that he wants to sell um, on on their free market and all of a sudden okay well the un has brought in 100 fishing rods what's he gonna do He's got no way to make money. So now the fishing rods are used up. They break down. Eventually they don't work. And now there's no business. Now there's no way for the people to subsist. So it's really interesting to hear stories like that where someone has come in and, and employed the African people and created those opportunities. Yeah, if I had to do anything that I learned to support them over there, I think it would be micro loans. Micro loans. To, to help them get going to have the capital to buy the supplies to build the first fishing rod and that kind of thing. Because North Americans in particular, but Western countries send aid and it's not always, we think we're doing the right thing, like your fishing pole story or everything else, but sometimes it's not needed. Yeah. Uh, the farm, for example, in this village that I'm talking about was in the highlands, no mosquitoes. Yet they sent tens of thousands of mosquito nets so they didn't even know the land that they were giving it to. So it was almost. a waste. So so it doesn't always get to the right thing. So it, it kind of goes back to help them to help themselves. Right. Teach a man to fish. Going. Now, there's always differences. I've seen uh, in one entrepreneur magazine, these people have de developed a solar light and different things like that. And th those are definitely helpful. And I encourage all people to give if they can. To different things but do there should be more homework given as to the best way to to give and help well it's really easy not easy but it's it's a lot more simple to just raise a bunch of money through a foundation and toss it at something than it is to actually spend money time resources on figuring out what exactly they need and how is this going to help them be sustainable yeah. How is it going to set them up? So that's yeah. And education is education is certainly a big part of that. And you know, I, I attribute a lot of where I am now to the fact that I've been a student of life all my life, and I read a lot and uh, try to sift through a lot of other people's great ideas. Uh, I think one of the things that I've done really well is uh, I'm not necessarily an ideas guy, but I know a good idea when I hear it, and gotcha. then I act on it. So I surround myself with people and books and information and all that kind of stuff for a lot of people who are a lot brighter than me. And I'm just smart enough to know what the good ideas are and to take them and use them myself. That's super cool. 
Super cool. Interesting. Um, with with uh, my question with traveling was normally when we travel, um, you know, it's 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 after high school. You know, you go travel for sometimes a year, sometimes three years, sometimes five years, um, and then you come back and build your career. Now you've given us example where you've actually you've got a career and you've prioritized traveling what benefit does that have to people that are already in business already have careers have lives kids family whatever it may be what benefits does traveling give you that you can pass on to someone else well i think the there's a number of things but just life experience and and for those of us in in canada and all that i mean a building is old that is 100 years old here yeah i mean you go to the uk and a 300 year old house is nothing out of the ordinary yeah and so it i think it's perspective as much as anything whether it's appreciating old art or things that have history or anything else or seeing how countries uh, like in asia that have got some of the most modern technology skyscrapers all that kind of stuff of anywhere in the world they're not necessarily constrained by over-regulation, everything, and uh, regulation for safety, and that's good, but, I mean, they've come up with some really ingenious buildings and different things like that. I always pay attention to the buildings because I'm a real estate guy, but it'd be applicable to all kinds of things. So it's seeing how fortunate we are to live where we are, and and so we have an appreciation for it, Uh, but also to think outside the box. Sometimes when we're in the one box and we don't travel and we don't see new things, it all starts to look the same. Whereas you go somewhere else and maybe it's maybe it's the way they run their mass transit for their city or maybe it's whatever. There's there's a lot of good ideas out there that aren't necessarily homegrown. That we can apply. Yeah. Super interesting. I got a yeah. question about like in your business career and everything like that. Was there ever a time where um, you reached like a tough moment where you didn't think you didn't really know how to get out of it or you're in a you're in a spot where you're like holy smokes i'm not sure if this is going to work out well lots of times lots of times yeah i bet the farm a few times you bet the farm a few times eh? but i i think i mentioned it earlier failure was never an option so there have been some sleepless nights for sure um you know had to make moves and uh, admit mistakes and and correct them and all that kind of stuff on numerous occasions but that's why my poor wife is a saint. Is uh, she's uh, put up with quite a, quite a bit uh, of that kind of stuff. But she's like, if you asked her, she'd always say she was confident. I'd find a way out, even if I didn't know what that looked like, and uh, whether that was, or you know, just shortage of cash flow or this or that or whatever else. I always tended to reach just a little bit further than I should have. But having said that. I actually retract that because uh, had I not, I probably wouldn't uh, be where I am now. Absolutely. You've made, uh, with big risk often comes great reward as long as you have the smarts to, to back it. Yeah, I don't think, you're right. I don't think it was risk for the sake of risk. It was calculating to find risk. Right. I just sometimes put that line pretty close to, <laughs> to the breaking point. I gotcha. So it, w- it wasn't whimsical, I guess you could say. I always had a plan and normally had an escape plan. And sometimes I had to use the escape plan. 
Gotcha. How about operations side? What kind of uh, like what kind of operator are you? What kind of business owner are you? Hire excellent people to do their job very well and let them do it. Not a, not a helicopter manager, that's, that's for sure. No, I mean, there's certain things that I like to see done a certain way and everything else, but uh, you'll remember my story at the beginning that one of the biggest mistakes I did was make it all about me and I did all the work myself right. and everything else. And it wasn't about taking credit for it and everything else. It's just I wanted it to be done a specific way. And I sold people on me doing it that way and everything right. else. And uh, the, that was a huge lesson to trust in people, hire good people, uh, and let them do their job. And they might do it a little differently than you, but as long as it is professional of a high degree and everything else, it doesn't have to be done. As long as the end result is the same, they can get there a different path. And you still have oversight at the end of the day. Absolutely. It's not like you're just oh, veto handing them off, figure it out. I veto stuff all the time. Yeah. But I also let, again, I'm pretty exacting on what I want the end result to be and what standard and everything it is. You don't really but care they how don't, it gets there. They don't necessarily need to get there the same way I would. Yeah. Interesting. I like that. I like the that trust is the foundation there because I think people appreciate that. Um, obviously, we know the perils of the hel- the you know the typical helicopter manager, the people that are micromanaging and all that stuff. Um, they go okay people think that it's about being given independence, but it's not, it seems like it's not always about just giving independence, but it's also knowing that you're superior. The person that put you in that spot has that inherent faith in you and the inherent trust in you. It's so huge. I think one of the secrets is to hire good human beings first and not put this skill set second. The person has to have an aptitude to learn the position and excel in it. But, too many people are trying to look for the perfect skill set and don't concentrate enough on the human being as a human being. I can teach people how to do things the way I like it. I can't teach them to be a good human being. Very true. So if you hire a good human being with the aptitude to learn, yes, you have to invest a little bit more in that individual, uh, but the long-term benefit far outweighs the extra effort to get them to where you need them to be. Because they're therefore they're ethical and they make good decisions and they make it about the client and they put other people before themselves. And the other thing is if you invest in people and help them maybe get somewhere else or to a position higher than what they thought they would get to and everything else, uh, I don't want this to come out wrong, but they're loyal. Because you've helped bend over backwards to help them, they tend to bend over backwards to help you. Absolutely. So that's why you'll see that uh, within our group of uh, admin staff and everything else, we happily support and pay for continued education, um, you know, courses, everything they want to do. And, and we hire and promote a lot from within is that they don't have to hit a glass ceiling and everything else. And uh, if you invest in people, it tends to pay off, even if that means that they have to go somewhere else at some point to continue that journey. They're the first ones that will send clients back to the business or recommend a realtor that they'd be well taken care of if they came to one of our brokerages. Or That's just one example. Well, when people do shop like that in real estate, they go straight to whatever website um, that their local realtor, they trust it. Someone comes from Vancouver and they're with a Remax agent, the chances that they're going to end up on, you know, Vernon's website is so much greater. So you're, it's, right. it's a long-term plan, right? 
It is. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and and a lot of it's a philosophy of how you want to live. Yeah. So I don't I don't want to micromanage and be angry all the time and jumping up and down and all that kind of stuff. Panic, I just, panic mode. Yeah, I, I'd rather just have people around me that I trust uh, implicitly and and then let them do their job. Great. That's awesome. Really so I, I think uh, because... What do you like to say? Landing the plane? Landing the plane. We've got to land this plane. So me and David each have a question that we normally ask at the end of the podcast. And I really like these two for your purposes. I think like the more you can elaborate, the better. It doesn't have to be a single line answer, but I think we can segue out of this really well just with what we've talked so about. I can't so. just say yes or no. They're no. not yes or no. <laughs> They're not yes or no's. Purposely. Okay, bring it on. All right. Um, so I like to always ask guests what they're what they're currently obsessed with right now. Whether that's now it can be super random, like a new phone you just got, um, or you're into golf shirts now, for example. <laughs> like I tell you what, my current obsession is probably philosophy. Oh, I thought you said flossing. I was like, oh, that's a, that's a new one. Philosophy, oh, philosophy. okay. And philosophy. And I've been reading all kinds of different philosophy, especially uh, a lot of ancient Eastern philosophy and all that kind of stuff. And What kind of, like, Eastern being? Uh, everything from Taoism to the okay. Stoics. Um, Interesting. A lot of great Stoic uh, wisdom out there. Um Taoism. Taoism yeah. is actually very, uh, very interesting. I went to a few, uh, a few meetings in Kelowna a few years back, and actually uh, went through their whole like initiation into Taoism and everything. It's a pretty yeah, fascinating really. culture. And other things, Sun Tzu, the Art of War. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a lot of that's on my list stuff to read. Actually, yeah. So, so there's those kind of things, um, and other books. Like I think everybody in business should, or a government actually. I think everybody in government should read Atlas Shrugged. Uh, it's, it's a tough read. It's 1,200 pages, and but Anne Rand was basically foretelling what we're faced with in our universe right now. As far as uh, I'll let you read it. Interesting. It's good, but so I read a lot. Um, but but as far as particular things I'm reading and really getting into right now, it'd, it'd have to be philosophy Do you of all different sorts. Uh, like as as a person or as a family, even are you guys religious at all? No, no. Do you, or do you find yourself? Do you, I guess this just kind but, of but I, a label but I wouldn't but like I wouldn't that. say that we're not spiritual. I was just going to ask: or Would you call yourself spiritual then? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, I haven't figured out. Uh, I mean, the universe oh, just fascinates me. I mean, if you went onto my Netflix right now, you'd see all about the cosmos and big myths and yeah. all those kind of things and. Uh, animal shows about you know life in the wild and all that kind of stuff and the circle of life and all that and yeah it is a fascinating topic i've uh one of the things that's always sparked my interest as well is just space space just blows my mind well there's so much that space is insane so much overall that we've been able to understand at the same time in the scheme of things, it's so minuscule in what's we're, actually We're such a there. little speck totally on, is, in, yeah. in the whole thing. Yeah. So, again, I think a lot of those things, for me, just give me perspective. Um, you know, the big questions, why are we here? And all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's up to everybody to answer for themselves. But uh, I find philosophy and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, with the Parkinson's and everything else. Uh, I think everybody 
I think everybody should find joy in their life regardless how they get to that. Absolutely. Very interesting philosophy. So philosophy, yes. Very cool. That's a whole other podcast. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll have you back for sure. Um, My question is, you have got a student in front of you. They've just graduated high school. They don't plan to go to college, but they don't plan to travel. They don't know what to do. They're almost frozen in time. What kind of advice would you give them to help get them on their way to figuring out what it is they want to do and to actually have a fulfilling life? Wow. And this, this can lead into, you know, how, how you do it, you know, you can always take your experience and relate it to someone else to try and help them. Yeah. I think, well, for me, I mean, one thing leads to another and you open doors and everything else. So uh, the worst thing you can do is hobbit hole up and not experience the world. So if you're not going to travel and everything else, it doesn't mean you can't uh, be adventurous, whether it's in your own city. What's your passion? Do you like to paint? Then go take some painting classes and maybe somebody who you meet there owns an art store and they need somebody to come and work in the art store and then you decide you do want to go back to school and become an art historian or antiquities dealer. Life leads from one thing to the other as long as you have your eyes open. So I guess I guess that's the biggest thing that I would say is is walk around life with your eyes open and look for opportunities. Look for things that catch your capture your imagination and and make you smile and then and then follow up on those things. Awesome. Love it, man. Love Can it. I actually reframe that question to the complete opposite? Somebody who's, you know, let's say 50 years old. Yeah. Uh, doesn't have a lot to show for it anymore. Something could have happened. Don't have a lot. Someone who's 50, what kind of advice do you have for them? Someone Looking at life 50. being like, wow, what do I have to show for it so far? What do you say to them? They don't know what they want to do with the rest of their life. Well, I think I think part of it is not to dwell on the past. You, you can't do about everything that's in the rear view mirror. Just like I can't fix the mistakes I've made in business and life and everything else. I accept them. I learn from them. And I try not to repeat them. So, I mean, it's an old saying, but the the uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Mm-hmm. So I think my advice to them is be open to change, pursue change. It might be identify and self-reflection. What is it that led to the decisions that got them in the first place? Do they not feel good about themselves? Well, then go get healthy and feel better about yourself. And then maybe the world opens up more opportunities to you. Uh, is it because your course of work? Is it because whatever? So self-reflect that what got you there. Identify it. Accept it. Don't dwell on it. But then go do something differently and, and be willing to change. You know, if you don't like where, where you are, you need to do something different. Beauty. Answer your question? Yeah. That's cool, man. Thanks so That's much, cool. Brad. This has been a absolutely enlightening and amazing uh amazing episode and i really enjoyed having you on here yeah, i had a lot of fun with you boys thanks yeah thanks for coming on man uh you've been a mentor for me for the last couple of years and and i look forward to many more years of of success together and and you, you gave me such an important opportunity that really formed a catalyst in my life so it's very personal for me to to have you on here and to to make sure that more people other than me benefit 
benefit from the knowledge and the wisdom that that you've carried over. So uh, I, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you and, and I appreciate you coming on with us today. Well, thank you for those kind words, but uh, it's a mutually fulfilling relationship. I very much appreciate working with you. So cheers, man. Cheers. Thank you.